Because of this good news, Paul says that we live sacrificially transformed lives of renewed thinking and genuine love. And that is a summary statement of the first part of chapter 12, which he unpacks for essentially the rest of the letter. And when Scripture begins, anytime Scripture begins to talk about how you and I as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, are going to start relating to people outside the fellowship of the church, as Paul does at the end of chapter 12. He's, most of 12 is about how we relate to each other in the church, but at, towards the end of 12, he starts to include those outside of the church as well. Uh, when Scripture begins to do that, it's only natural that, they, they might, that, that, that Scripture might turn its attention to how you and I as Christ followers should relate to and engage the governing authorities, our government. Uh, and many, te- many say, I, I'll just tell you, we'll get all of this nice little introduction work done. Many people say that this message is the most controversial message of all the messages in the book of Romans, these seven verses that we look at today. J.C. O'Neill writes this about these verses. These seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament. If you are new to Redemption Arcadia this morning, welcome. We are glad that you are here. Uh, now, that's a t- perhaps what O'Neill says is, is a bit exaggerated, but I will also say it's not very far off. Uh, some have even gone so far as to argue. Some people have looked at the book of Romans, and they have argued, and let me just say this, There is absolutely no textual evidence and no historical evidence of this whatsoever. Yet, some people have looked at this passage and have argued, oh, Paul didn't really write this. Somebody just inserted this after the fact, and therefore we really don't have to listen to it or heed it. And I always respond to people that say stuff like that about Scripture by just going, well, that was a nice try. And here's the question. Here's really the question. I, I mean, this is, a, now it's, this is a legitimate question. Are you and I, as Christ followers, are we going to be editors of God's Word? Or are we going to be disciples of God's Word? Jesus says in the Great Commission, go out and make disciples. He does not say, go out and make editors of my Word. He, he says, you, could, you need to be disciples of what I teach. And Jesus teaches exactly the same thing that Paul teaches in this passage here. I like how Kent Hughes frames this. He says, We are heaven's citizens living in submission to human government. Therefore, there is going to be tension, but God has directed us. And we need to know that this tension started in the very beginning, from the moment Jesus went to the cross. In the eyes of the Roman law, the founder of the church was convicted and executed on a charge of sedition against the Roman government. The one record of Jesus known to Roman law is that he led a movement which challenged the sovereignty of Caesar. And you and I are his people, and therefore we too are guilty. Now we also know that 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 is absolutely not true. It's not true at all. If anything, Jesus' teaching on the government is something that Caesar would have stood up and cheered and said, yeah, I like that guy. He's teaching the right thing. But, but like today, facts and reputations 2,000 years ago could be very tricky things to negotiate, just like we run into today. 
So here's the big idea today. Here's the big idea of these seven verses that David read. Trust God even when we're sure it's impossible because He is sovereign and He is perfect in all things and He is Lord of all. That's essentially what this boils down to. We've been talking the last several weeks about the need for humility as Christians and the need for trust, trust of God as Christians. And today is absolutely no different. And I would suggest that the key to this whole passage really resides in the second part of verse 1, where Paul says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. So he says, Subject yourselves, therefore, obey, therefore, the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that from God, and those that have been instituted by God. And, and so you and I, if we were sitting around having coffee, let's just be honest, you and I might be okay with no authority except from God. Yes, God is the authority. Yea, God, go, God. But when it comes to the institutions that God has given, the human institutions that God has specifically given authority to, we're not so cool with those. Let's just admit that. And there are actually four of those, we could argue. There's the government, there's the family, there's the workplace, and the church. Those are the four authorities that God has instituted. And that's where we really begin to practice more of an open rebellion against God is through those institutions. But this is, I think, the key point of this passage. He says, there is no authority except from God and those that God has instituted. Here you go. The reason to obey the governing authorities is not pragmatic. I cannot promise you, nor can anyone else, that if you perfectly obey the governing authorities, that your life will be absolutely wonderful and problem-free. We would like that to be true. We really would. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons as Christians we'd like that to be true is because it would be easier to argue this passage and present it to you. It would be easier to understand. It would be easier to accept. But that's not why we obey. The reason that we obey is not because we will skip consequences and punishment if we obey the governing authorities. Though that may be true, and the passage even mentions this later on in the passage, that's not the primary reason why we would obey, and of course that's not perfect either. The reason we obey is not because human rulers are always so wonderful and good. We know that they aren't. Though sometimes, human rulers really are pretty good. Like Joseph. In Genesis chapters 37 through 50, that guy was pretty, a pretty good ruler. Rather, the reason to obey is God. Come on, y'all are Christ followers, right? This should be a very short sermon. I should be able to stop right here. I'm surprised I didn't get any amens there. That's interesting. <laughs> Apparently, you'd like me to unpack this a little bit more. Okay. But the reason to obey, Paul says, is because... God asked us to. That's His will for us. He's sovereign, He is Lord, and we are to submit to His will. Remember, I'm going to go back to Joseph. Remember when Joseph, if you know the story, if you don't, read the story. It's magnificent. In in Genesis 39, Joseph has an opportunity. He has a shot at Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife comes to him and says, Joseph, lie with me. And it's not in the text, but, I, I, boy, I, so I, I'm, I'm going outside of the biblical text here, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. Potiphar was a very high up in, in the rule of Egypt. He was like maybe second or third in charge in, in, in Egypt at the time. 
Potiphar's wife is probably not going to be a two. She's probably pretty hot. I mean, you want to talk pragmatics, let's talk some pragmatics here. She's probably a nine or a ten. And Joseph hasn't had physical intimacy in years. And Potiphar's gone, and she's saying, here you go, big guy, you got your shot at me. And Joseph says no. Why does he say no? Two reasons. He says, how can I do this and sin against Potiphar, who's been very good to me, But even more than that, he says, I can't do this and sin against God. The primary reason he says no to Potiphar's wife is because he says, I can't do that to God. God has willed it that I would not sleep with you, Ms. Potiphar. And then he accepted, like a big boy, the consequences of getting Potiphar's wife angry with him. You see how that works out? And it did work out eventually for Joseph. Doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work out for you, but it did for him. But that's the reason that we submit to and obey. Okay? The minute that you and I make Christianity about pragmatics, i got to tell you something, we're just lost. And we might as well just listen to Dr. Phil. It would be so much easier you could stay home and just Netflix him or whatever it is. Okay? So here's the plan. Here's the plan today. I'm going to comment a little bit on the verses for maybe 15 minutes. And then the last... 18 to 20 minutes, I'm going to hit you with six points of application that come out of this this text. So I'm not going to go really, really deep in the text, but we're going to hit the application pretty hard. So let's just do a little bit of commentary first. Uh, In in verse 1, that word subject, as in subject yourselves to the governing authorities, generally means to obey. And, And what we need to realize here is that this is also a question of order. God is really into order, created order. He's anti chaos, He doesn't like that. And even if there is chaos, He's Lord of the chaos as well. But He's really a God of order. It's quite important to Him. And so God would tell you that poor government is still better than chaos or anarchy. He would say, poor government is still better than chaos or anarchy. For those of you that are in, such, uh, in this type of thing, I'm not, but I, I, I didn't see this movie. I don't plan to, um, but I do know the story. Think purge. You would rather have a poor government than the purge scenario, okay? Richard Halverson, the one-time chaplain of the United States Senate, writes, writes this. To be sure, men will abuse and treat the institution of the state just as man, because of sin, has abused and mistreated every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and that we rebel in God's world. As a matter of fact, the very, this very sin is, the, is a big reason that there must be human government. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. And I know some of you right away that you know the Bible and right away you want to push back and argue. And, and I admit, yes, there are a few passages in Scripture that do, that do show that God approves disobedience to the government in certain occasions. In other words, when the government commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands, we, we can push back against the government. But we need to remember that those times are extraordinarily rare and much rarer than we think. And much rarer than we think. So in all the other cases, God comes along and says, you need to obey the government. So just because you don't like it or you don't agree with it, it doesn't mean that you have some God-given right to disobey. The times that we can disobey, as I said, are fairly rare. And we're not going to teach on those. It's funny. I'm a little excited this morning. 
three cups of coffee, too, as well. So this is going to be good, all right? Um, I, I'm always interested on the person who teaches on Romans uh, 13, 1 through 7, and never talks about Romans 13, 1 through 7, but instead goes to the three or four places in Scripture where we can disobey the government and makes it all about that. I'm assuming you know all of those. I'm going to tell you why we need to submit to and obey the government this morning because that's what God says, okay? And, and Paul, understand, Paul does not make this disobedience diso- this to the government somehow contingent on particular government behavior. In other words, if the government is good, you should be- behave. It, no, 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 no. He doesn't make it contingent at all. It's just like biblical teaching on marriage. Well, I don't have to respect my husband if he's not worthy of my respect. Or, you know, I don't have to love my wife. I mean, it's unreasonable to expect me to love my wife if she's being unlovable. Here you go. Neither of you have a verse. You don't have a verse anywhere. There's nothing in Scripture like that. And you don't have a verse here. Okay? So then, you might ask, does God sometimes go so far as to institute bad rulers as a means of trial for human beings? You know, you look in Second Chronicles and there are a couple places there and, and that indicate that that's true. As well as pretty much the entire narrative in Daniel about King Nebuchadnezzar. And at least eight times in Scripture, Scripture says this, God raises up and deposes kings and leaders and He does so for His purposes and He does so uh, for His purposes and not ours. So even though Christians are not to take personal revenge, we talked about that last week in Romans 12, 17 through 21, we can turn our grievances over to the governing authorities to carry out. And I know some of you, but, but it's not perfect. I know it's not perfect. But neither are you. Neither am I. Every one of us, if we were willing to, we could share times where we executed and meted out justice and punishment and then found out we were wrong. So we're not perfect either. But God is perfect. And He's eventually going to make all of this okay. Will He do it before we die? I don't know. Eventually, it's going to be made perfect. And that is Romans 12, 17 through uh, 21 again. That's, that's what we talked about last week. We've got to leave room for God's vengeance. Leave room for Him to avenge. And, and it's also what uh, chapter 13, verse 4 says. The state is charged with a function that has been explicitly forbidden to Christians in Romans 12, 17 through 21. Again, there's that stinking chapter break that I hate. We look at the chapter break at the end of 12 and the beginning of 13. In our mind somehow, we assume that Paul puts the finishing touches on chapter 12 and then he goes and has coffee for three hours and then comes back and sits down and starts a whole new topic with the government. No. That chapter break is man-made. It was inserted by a guy in the 17th or 15th or 14th century some time ago but way after Paul wrote it. This is one contiguous, continuous thought that Paul is talking about. And in fact, it's in the context of how we are to express genuine love. This is part of how we are to express genuine love, live sacrificially, and have transformed lives by the renewing of our mind. So the problem isn't God. The problem is us. And the problem is we don't like submission. We just don't. This passage also helps to reinforce a key biblical theme. You can find this throughout Scripture, especially in Proverbs. Here's a key biblical theme that it reinforces. The wise person submits to God and to the authorities that he has ordained and instituted, 
the fool expects everyone else and everything else to submit them to them and adapt to them. So the wise submits, the fool expects submission. And it's funny because there's a lot of research that's been done on this. About 10% of the population falls into that first category, the wise category, only about 10%. In the church, there are those people who profess Jesus and they really mean it. All things are submitted to them. He is Lord. All of life is all for Jesus. But then there are those, many, many more, who profess Jesus, but really their idea of Jesus is that he comes under their authority. And I call this pocket Jesus. Do you have pocket Jesus? You just keep him in your pocket until you need him to do something for you, and then you pull him out and sick him, Jesus. And then, now, uh, you're done, Jesus. Get back here. Get back in my pocket, okay? That's pocket Jesus. So, We really need to be truly in the camp of Jesus and the gospel and not just say we are. So we need to submit. Remember, verse 2 says this. Whoever disobeys the authorities disobeys God. So here's the one deep biblical Greek textual work that I'm going to do today. What does verse 2 really say in the Greek? Here's what it says. Whoever disobeys the governing authorities disobeys God. That's what it says. No loopholes here. And in verse 4, it's very interesting. The purpose of the government is to do good, and the role of the government is as God's servant. The purpose is to do good, and the role is as God's servant. And I know the first thing we want to do is we want to judge the government on that. We want to stand in judgment of the government on that. And I just want to say, remember, we are going to have as many different opinions about the government as there are voices. Here is one absolutely indisputable fact in the United States. Right now in the United States, there are 330 million committees of one all asking the same question. What about me? That's the problem that we face. And verse 5 tells us that generally, by doing this, we're going to avoid God's wrath and the government's wrath. And I would think that's a good thing. And I know that Paul, it may sound like in this verse that Paul is saying that's the reason, the primary motivation for obeying the government. Uh, No unpleasantness for us. But it's really not. The primary reason is in the second half of that verse where he says such obedience is is in accordance with God's will for us. And by rendering that obedience, it will preserve a good conscience for you and I in relationship to God. That's a big deal. To have this good conscience in relationship with God. Rebels against authority always malign the giver of that authority. That's the problem. Ah, yes, and then verse 6. The tax issue is raised. Now, remember what happened when Jesus was questioned about the taxes? Remember that? Matthew 22. He says, you need to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you need to render to God what is God, God's. In that little passage there, Jesus firmly establishes the validity and authority of human government But he also sets some limits. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? Caesar has stamped his name on a lot of stuff. And he has the right to stamp his name on a lot of stuff. And you need to submit to that stuff that he stamped his name on. But you also need to remember that God has put a stamp on you as well. God's image is stamped on our humanity. God's law is stamped on our hearts 
And God's righteousness through His Son is stamped on our souls. But He absolutely says that government has this authority. And I also want you to understand that when Paul wrote this, there are other uh, historical accounts that talk about how there, at this time there were pagan Jewish and Gentile Romans alike. In other words, all Romans who were violently rioting in the streets of Rome over, guess what? Taxes. They were rioting about taxes. And so Paul writes this to tell Christ followers that we are to be different. We're to shine like lights in a generation of darkness and wickedness. So Paul takes a particularly unpopular but godly position here. He says, pay your taxes. And Jesus took exactly the same position. Doesn't mean you shouldn't take all your deductions and try to figure all that out, but you need to pay your taxes. And then Paul ends, I didn't get an amen on that either. I'm a little disappointed. Okay, so then, then Paul ends this teaching with a command to do something that sounds quite the same as Jesus's. He says, give everyone, give to everyone all that you owe them. This is how the citizens of heaven relate to the world. This is how the citizens of heaven relate to the world. So now, here you go. I want to get deeper into application. I got 17 minutes to do this. Six points of application. I know some of you are like, six? Really? That's a lot. I had nine. I cut out three. And you are Arcadians. You can handle this. You're smart. Okay? So here you go. Here's number one. Rather than rebelling against the state, mocking the state, or trying to figure out clever ways around the state, you and I as Christians are called to be the state's best citizens. And I know, I hear it, because I've said it myself too, but wait a minute, we're citizens of heaven. That's true, but we're actually dual citizens. Paul tells us that in Philippians. And and the implications of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 also tells us that we are dual citizens. He prayed this. And he's praying to his father. He says, I do not ask that you take them, my disciples, out of this world because they're citizens of this world, but rather that you protect them from the evil one. Is it, is it, so as citizens of both heaven and this world, they need to be citizens of the world, living in the world, but I want you as citizens of heaven to protect them from the evil one. And I want you to consider this too. Uh, this, just read some history. You and, I live, you and I live in the United States with way more power and voice than any Roman citizen ever had. And yet, you know, you look at our ver- voter turnout, it just, it's just terrible. We have voice. We have some power. And, and most of us choose not to exercise it other than going on Facebook and Twitter and all these other places and whining about how much the government stinks. Okay. Hey, if it's that bad, why don't we get engaged? Why don't we step up and get engaged and quit just criticizing? There's something that, don't put it up yet, there's something that Tom Schrader says all the time. Uh, and, and if you understand metaphor and enthymeme, you'll, you'll see what I'm getting at here. And, and if not, don't worry, I'll explain it. But here's what Schrader says a lot. He says, when people are unhappy with their own spirituality, they usually blame the church. When people are unhappy with their own spirituality, they usually blame the church. And the truth is, it's probably more their problem than the church's. When people are unhappy with the government, it's usually that they've decided to withdraw and not be involved. Okay? So if you think the government stinks, quit blaming them, and you be the answer to your own prayer. You be the solution to your own criticism. That's what we would say. So that first... That first idea there is that we should be the state's best citizens. Number two, 
Uh, when we can disobey, so we talked about this, when we can disobey, if the government commands something that God forbids or, or forbids something that God commands, happened a few times in Scripture, not very many, when that does happen, we need to remember that if that's happening and we choose to disobey, here's the one caveat for us. We are also called to accept the temporal consequences of disobeying and do it with joy. So in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, the disciples are out proclaiming the gospel and preaching Jesus. And, and the governing authorities, the Jewish ruling council, they tried to stop them and they beat them and they made life miserable for them. And they said, look, we're going to obey God, not man. This is one of those times in Scripture that we're talking about. And then they counted it as an honor to be worthy of suffering for God. So when they were beaten because they were disobeying uh, the, the, the governing authorities, they counted it as an honor that they suffered on behalf of Christ. When Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Was in, was in the Birmingham jail and he wrote that letter, what was one of the things that he wrote in that letter? He said, don't be upset that I'm in here. I'm okay that I'm in here. I get it. I accept it. I'm fine in here. Not that big of a deal. There's another um, interesting biblical story about this. It's when John the Baptist goes to Herod and he questions his sexual ethics. Have you ever gone to somebody with a lot of power and questioned their sexual ethics? It usually doesn't end very well. John the Baptist had his head handed to him as a result of this. He was fine with that. He was fine with that. In, in Nazi Germany, Martin Niemöller was told several times by the Nazis to quit preaching and he just went on preaching. Of course, they threw him into prison. And so another minister went to see him, and, and he said, listen, Martin, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be here, and if you had just kept quiet, you wouldn't be here. Why did you have to go and do this? And Niemöller looks at him and says, well, why aren't you in here with me? So that's number two. Here's number three. This is often overlooked, often overlooked. When Christians do say no to an unauthorized demand of government, when we do determine that a government demand is unauthorized and we've decided to say no, it is a lot more effective if we also have demonstrated a wonderful track record of saying yes to all the authorized demands of government. If, if, if you're always saying no, I don't care. The man said to do this. I'm not going to do it. That's it. I'm not going to do it. If you're always saying no, then when you say no, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't mean anything. You're just another person saying no again, over and over and over. So nobody's going to listen to you. I don't know why that's so hard for so many of us to understand. Allegiance to God does not negate the responsibility that we all have to secular authority. I, 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 has anybody watched that new show, Utopia? The new reality show, Utopia? And nobody's going to be bold enough to raise their hand. Thank you very much, Tim. I appreciate that. Yes, my brother. I watched it for about 10 minutes. That's all I could take. I admit it, okay? And there's, there's the woman on there who is the atheist a anarchist, okay? She's an atheist anarchist and proud of it. Just absolutely proud of it. But it's, it's really funny what a hypocrite she is because uh, it, just in the 10 minutes I saw, she was saying, I'm an anarchist. I don't believe in rules. I don't believe in government. We should do whatever we want. That's what I believe in. And then like two minutes later, she's saying, you know, these guys that are here, we need some guidelines for how they're going to behave towards me because I don't want any of them grabbing me. Well, wait a minute. What if they're anarchists and their anarchy is to grab you? How does that work? I don't understand that. 
okay? So here's what's really funny about that. This atheist anarchist is actually a theist. She believes that she's God. She believes that anarchy is great as long as her anarchy rules. Do you see the hypocrisy here? So why would anybody ever listen to anything that she had to say? So that's number three. We should be saying yes to every authorized demand so that when we do say no, it means something. Number four, we need to remember that governing authorities are accountable and answerable to God. And this goes back to Romans 12, 17 through 21. God is going to take care of this even with the governing authorities whom we are submitting to that he has given authority to. And here you go, just to make sure we've covered just about everybody in the room, he is going to hold George W. Bush accountable and he is going to hold Barack Obama accountable. All right? That was weird. It's like all, uh, my assumption is everybody for Bush was over here, everybody, probably not true, okay? Okay. But, but you get that, right? You see, God cares about evil and he will avenge. That's what God's word tells us. Governing authorities do not have authority with impunity. They may not realize it. I get that. They may not realize it, but they don't have authority with impunity. And in fact, the Greek word for authority there literally means authority from another source. In other words, it's delegated authority. They wouldn't have this authority unless it had already been given to them by somebody else. And ironically, this is the exact same word that Jesus uses when he's confronted by Pilate and Pilate saying, why don't you just, why don't you get with the program here? Don't you understand that I have the authority, I have the power to let you go if I want? And Jesus says what? You wouldn't have that authority unless it was given to you from above. The only reason you have that authority is because my father gave it to you. And then this is what's really freaky is Jesus then submitted himself to that authority and went to the cross and was executed. Number five, there is very good reason that people distrust authority. I get it. There is good reason that people distrust authority because... People have misused and abused authority. But this meme that's been going around for quite some time that authority is automatically evil just because it is authority is just as wrong as the opposing meme where people in authority assume that just because you're in in, in subjection to me, you must be evil. We've got these memes going on and they're both completely wrong. Authority in and of itself is not evil. It's how we practice it. Submission in and of itself is not evil. It's how we practice it. But this problem also rears its head in in, in sort of the opposite way, too, because have you noticed that there are some people who actually make idols out of people in government? They they think they're perfect. They think they have no flaws. They worship them to some extent. They make idols. They make false gods out of people in government as well. And, and, And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that false gods never fail to fail. Eventually, they're going to fail you. And when they do fail us, what happens is we don't look to our own own lack of discernment and our lack of wisdom as the problem, but rather we blame the idol and we say it's untrustworthy and then very often we'll use that as an excuse to go out and live rebelliously and selfishly. Viktor Frankl, who was the psychiatrist, who was one of the 10% that survived the Nazi concentration camps during World War II and was writing notes the whole time, watching everything, and, and, and ended up writing the book Man's Search for Meaning as a result of it. It's a fantastic book. Highly recommend it. Towards the end of the book, he's talking about what happened to those people that did survive the, the Nazi concentration camps, and he writes this. Now, 
being free, they, those that had survived, thought that they could use their freedom licentiously and ruthlessly. The only thing that had changed for them was that they were now the oppressors instead of the oppressed. They became instigators rather than objects of willful force and injustice. They justified their behavior by their own terrible experiences. See, that's the taint of sin. That's the taint of sin. That's the corruption of sin. It's true that we often have very good reason not to trust authority, but that does not mean that we do not submit to and trust God. We need to remember that. And then number six, last one. As followers of Jesus, our perspective is not what is owed to us. That should not be our perspective. As followers of Jesus, we should not be walking around talking about what everybody owes us or what God owes us. But rather, we fulfill all of our obligations to what we owe everyone else. And that includes taxes. And listen, I get it. I mean, if you don't know this already by now about me, I'm I'm a lower tax guy. I am. I admit it. And, And I don't always like the way taxes get spent. But I have to ask myself this question, and so should you. Do you think the Roman government was any better at this? Do you think they were better at this? Do you think the Roman citizens 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this, they had this perfect government that had really low taxes and every dollar was perfectly and beautifully and wonderfully accounted for and spent wisely every single... Is that, is that what was going on in Rome? Oh, so Paul wrote this in a context where it was easy to pay your taxes. It was easy to submit to the government. No. Again, I would argue we have it much, much easier than the Romans had. You see, our problem, I mentioned this last week, our problem is is that we're always looking for loopholes. We're loophole experts. Here's our loophole. Here's our loophole. As Christians, here you go. Write this down. You've been looking for your loophole from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Here is your Christian in Christ loophole. Here it is. Nobody's writing this down. I'm going to say it anyway. Our loophole is that in Christ we have the freedom to be the very best citizens even when we disagree and to be cheerful about it. That's our loophole. There was a guy named Polycarp. He was the uh, pastor of the church at Smyrna uh, in the late uh, 100s and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the late, um, the late first century, early second century. And in the year 155 A.D., at the age of 86, The Roman government had finally had it with him and they came along and they said, unless you stop preaching Jesus and renounce Jesus, unless you do this, we are going to burn you at the stake. And Polycarp said, I'm not going to stop preaching Jesus. I'm not going to renounce Jesus. And so they slow burned him at the stake. Those of you that are historians, do you know the difference between a slow burn and a fast burn? Okay, a fast burn is when you're doing the person you're executing, you're doing him or her a favor with the fast burn. It means that they violated some law and you need to execute them, but you're really not that mad at them. And so you fast burn them because it's over like that. But if you're really angry at the person you're going to kill, you slow burn them so that they're tortured for a while. And Polycarp lived for 15 minutes as they slow burned him. You know what he did the whole time that he was being burned? He proclaimed the gospel and proclaimed the forgiveness of those that did this to him. That's what he did. And that is a picture of Jesus in the gospel. And this is why you and I are equipped and have the power to be able to live this way. 
as excellent citizens of the state. We, we have the ability to do that. It's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be pleasant. It's not always going to go well. It's not always going to be exactly what we want. But that's what we're called to. That is what we're called to. So, to whom you owe money, revenue, pay them. To whom we owe honor, revere and bless them. To whom we owe respect, affirm and admire them. And I just want you to know, and, and I struggle with this too, I need to know this too, that, that, that those people are way more numerous than you and I realize. In fact, most of you are probably sitting next to one right now. Okay? We're not just called to quietism. We're not just called to just passively try to get by and keep our mouths shut, but we are called to active gospel involvement. And that means trust. I referred to this earlier, John chapter 19, when Jesus is in front of uh, Pilate. And I just want to read it. This is, this is the epitome of trust that Jesus showed uh, for his father. Here he is standing in front of Pilate. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and, and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would, not, you, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He's saying, I'm going to submit to this. I'm going to submit to this because this is all being orchestrated by my father and I trust him even though it's going to be really unpleasant. Crucifixion is a very, very unpleasant thing. But Jesus fully trusted God in that. I want to close with this quote from Justin Martyr. He was another second century church father like Polycarp. He wrote this in a letter to the Roman governors. Everywhere we Christians, more readily than all others, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men and praying that, with your kingly power, you may be found to possess also sound judgment. Let me pray, and we'll uh, move into our time of response and reflection. God, we, uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it is hard. It is just difficult to pray a prayer of thanksgiving for this message. It really is. But God, we are thankful that you've given us some measure of order because that order is better than chaos. And we are thankful that you call us to love even when that love is very, very difficult. And that love means submission. But we're also reminded that, that death is actually at the center of love. It was at the center of the love you showed us when Christ went to the cross. And it's at the center of the love that we should show as we die to ourselves and live for you and live for others. God, help us to be able to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.